It's now time for Skagit Talks, featuring local news, interviews, and information from around the valley, created with the help of Skagit County community volunteers. Now, KSVR 91.7 presents Skagit Talks. Today is a conversation with Heather Bauhe, local author. She talks about the art of writing young adult fiction and fiction in general. From the Northwest News Network, hey, apples and spuds, backing up at Northwest Ports. Klamath Basin faces drought again. Economically important summer cruise season in Northwest on shaky sea legs. All this and more on today's edition. Now, local author, Heather Bauhe. Hello there. This is Daryl hamilton Manier for Skagit Talks. And today, I'll be speaking with Heather Bauhe, a local author, and we'll be discussing the art of writing. Heather, thank you for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me, Daryl. Before we get into the topic of writing, I just want to give a little bit of background about you. So you currently work for the state of Washington, but prior to that, you were a substitute teacher. So just briefly, how long were you a teacher and what grades did you teach? Oh yeah, boy, I was a teacher for about 15 years and I guess taught in grades K through 12. Might be kindergartners one day and 12th graders the next. And um, I also was did some long-term leave replacements. So I taught third grade for six months. Um, I was a library media specialist for a year. I taught fifth grade for a few months. I would get called when someone went out on maternity leave. Um, and then also for a couple of years, I was a parent educator and taught adults as well. All right, sounds good. And why did you decide to leave or give up teaching? Oh, Daryl, that's a tough one. I guess <laughs> I don't really feel like I gave up teaching in my current role um, as an HR training consultant. I still teach and facilitate workshops. I would just say now the focus is on personal and professional development, and my students are adults. Um, but what I like about my current job is that I'm able to utilize my creative writing side because I'm also developing curriculum and trainings, whereas in the school district, you're pretty much following a curriculum that's already been developed. So this allows me to be 50% creative with developing and 50% that facilitator, trainer, teaching side. Sounds good. So you write uh, young adult fiction. Yes. Uh, did being a teacher have any influence on you choosing that genre? Oh boy, you know, not really. I think I've always enjoyed fantasy books and young adult fiction. Um, and when I wrote the Guardian trilogy, what I have to say is I already had the main character in mind. And so Lexi Adams was in my mind already a freshman who was entering college and the setting was here in Bellingham. I think that, you know, just my love for reading that genre is probably what might have even, I don't know, might have coaxed me into enjoying teaching the middle school and high school levels the best as well. Okay, okay. And your books are currently available online at Amazon. And it, like you mentioned, it's called the Guardian series. So yes. talk a little bit, of, talk a little bit about the Guardian series. Uh, how many books are there? And what is the Guardian series all about? Yeah, so um, the Guardian trilogy is three books in a series. And the first one's Amethyst. The second book is Linked. And the third book is Dentile. And the main character, Lexi Adams, is a girl who's had premonitions all her life. So she gets these random premonitions and has to rush out and save someone. 
And she is so fed up with it and it controls her life that one day she just ignores it. And then someone dies and she is feeling pretty down on herself. And then she has a premonition of her own death. And she's thinking, you know what? Maybe this is, this is fate. This was, this is what happens. But at the same time in her town, of course, the, um, there are a bunch of murders that are very mysterious and no one quite knows what's going on. And it turns out there's a group called the Ray Packs and they are feeding on human essence. And so uh, Lexi meets a group of people that have some powers as well and they work together to take down the Ray Packs. And it's, um, it's just a story, her story set in Bellingham. And then as the other books continue, um, move across the States a little bit to change it up. Sounds very interesting. Um, do you have any more books planned for the Guardian series? Oh, someday. I did kind of leave it open where I could add a fourth book. So that's a possibility. Um, right now, though, I'm working on a series with my brother. We're co- co-writing the Sorcial Saga. So, uh, Are you able to talk a little bit about that or is that sure. secret? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, we've published books one and two. The first one is Awakening. And the second one is The Mysteries of Margorth. And we're getting ready to do book three. And the main character in this one, Jackson, he is a high school student. So it's a little more middle grade slash also young adult. And um, some weird things start happening. Uh, He's rescued in the bayou. He's by a small dragon that appears. So you've got the magical elements appearing and then it he goes on a discovery to find that there are isles in the sky um, for basically the Sorcial who learn um, different areas of magic. And so it's kind of Jackson's, Jackson's quest to find himself, who he is, realize he's also a Sorcial, but at the same time, dark magic is on the rise. And so he has to combat that along the way. Interesting, interesting. So can you take us through the process that you go through when writing a book from the idea stage all the way through to the publishing stage? Sure. I'll, I'll just kind of break it down in steps, I guess. Um, I like to start with, first of all, what kind of novel? I ask myself questions. As a teacher, I think that's what you do. You ask questions first, answer them, kind of know where you're going. So I always say, what kind of novel do I want to write? And I like to know, you know, ultimately, why am I writing it? Am I writing it as a bucket list? Am I writing it because I just want to do something fun? Am I writing it to make money? I think you kind of need to know what your goal is. And for me, it was just, I had a story that came to me and I was a a bucket list to write. And then now I just, you know, I've always been into creative writing. So once you know your genre, uh, I would say, you know, do a little research. What are the essential elements of this genre? Uh, What's the typical word count if you're doing, you know, like for myself, young adult fantasy, um, 80,000 plus. Who's my audience? Make sure you know your audience. Although in today's world, young adult, like I would say that's anywhere from 13 to, you know, 105. I think everyone reads young adult. It doesn't matter how old you are. Um, But know who your audience and who you're trying to, who you're going to be writing to. And then I also immerse myself in books of the same genre. So do a lot of reading in those books and then really come down to, okay, creating an outline. Um, 
planning out my story elements. There's a there was a book called The Comic Toolbox by John Vorhaus, and I think it's V O R H A U S. And he really kind of sets up um, some ideas, some questions that are helpful, um, helpful for guiding along the way, like questions that you might want to ask yourself, like who's the um, who's the hero? What does your hero want? Knowing that usually what comes next is a door opens and the hero takes control, but then of course a monkey wrench is thrown. Things fall apart and the hero hits rock bottom and then the hero risks all. What does the hero get in the end? And I like to kind of look at his story structure and think about that as I'm writing to make sure I'm kind of capturing, you know, answering those questions, capturing those elements. And then honestly, write, do the writing and don't stop. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then after you're done writing, you know, there's a lot of rewriting. There's a lot of self-editing. There's a lot of reaching out, having other people read it, belonging to book groups. Um, and then in today's world, you have to decide, do you want to self-publish or do you want to query an editor and try to go through a publishing house? So then there's some decisions to make after you've written your book and polished it the best that you can. So from the idea to actually kind of getting the final um, draft of the book, how long does that take for you at least on average? Ooh, that's a great question. I think it depends on how much time I'm able to commit to it. While I was, while I was guest teaching is when I wrote most of the Guardian trilogy. And I would say I probably was teaching three days a week and probably writing three days a week. And it would usually take me like about a year to write one of the books. So it's just, you know, like right now it's really tough because I'm working full-time 40 hours a week and mm -hmm. I may be only writing a little bit each day, but trying to devote like an hour or two on the weekends. Okay, okay. And you know, s some writers have preferences on how they write. Some authors like to write in the evenings some like to write in the mornings. Uh, Maya Angelou, for example, would rent out a hotel room to write. Do you have any particular preferences uh, when it comes to writing for you? Oh gosh, I just like to have, I just have my comfy computer chair sitting down at it. I like to not have anyone around me because the minute anyone asks a question, like walks by, what's for dinner tonight, mom? Takes me out of the story. I have to reread what I've just written or been thinking about. So as long as I'm by myself, but if I had the choice, I would love to be sitting in front of a window with a view of the ocean. I think that, um, I think that would be very conducive to writing. Okay. Okay. Um, have you ever had the, or experienced the dreaded writer's block? A few times. Um, usually when I'm just in the book, I'm in that mode, I'm thinking about it, I'm dreaming about it. So I don't have that happen as often as some people that have talked about the writer's block, but what I find works best is stepping away. And then I just don't write again that day. I step away and think about it. I might go for a walk, go for a drive, think about it, but don't write about it. And then um, I do a lot of my writing. This is going to sound weird when I'm falling asleep at night. So as I'm laying there trying to fall asleep, rather than counting sheep, I'm actually like imagining the scene, imagining the characters, what could happen. And that kind of puts me in that mode as I fall asleep. And then a lot of times I would wake up the next morning and be like, oh, I just wrote like a whole chapter in my mind last night. Now, what was it I was, 
what was it? What did I think? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, have you ever thought about trying another genre, you know, like mystery or science fiction or romance or anything like that? Oh, that's so funny that you asked, Daryl. Um, recently, I've been thinking it might be kind of fun to write a romance novel. Uh, they still say that that's the most popular genre out there. And when I'm writing my young adult novels, you know, besides writing those action scenes and some of those magical elements, I really love developing the relationships and the connections between people and some of those heart-wrenching scenes when two people can't be, be together, um, but then you build up to that moment where against all odds, they make it work. Because, you know, romance mo novels always end in happiness, love, hope, and the two main characters being able to be together in the end. So I don't know. I might try a romance okay, novel. Okay, well, so we'll be looking for that, <laughs> for a romance novel from Heather Bowie. <laughs> there um, you go. And then finally, if someone wanted to get into writing, uh, what advice would you give them? Oh, I guess a couple things. I'd say don't wait. Start now and write often. I also suggest, you know, be passionate what you're writing about. Um, I wouldn't just start writing historical fiction. I'm not passionate about it. I wouldn't even try to take that on. But I love YA. I love fantasy. I love paranormal elements. I love characters who make mistakes and learn and grow. Um, so be passionate about what you're writing about. I also think good advice that I got one time was, when you start off writing, write about what you know about when possible. So when I started writing Amethyst, I had been a college student at Western Washington University in the city of Bellingham. I'd hiked up to hidden waterfalls around Mount Baker. I'd been out to the San Juans. So those were things I knew about and those, the setting and some of those things were helpful. And then I could just build off of the magic elements and creating the story. And I guess lastly, I would just say, you know, make an outline, even if it's a short one, but feel free to change it. Don't get caught up in it. Feel free to like scratch that out and try something new and change it up. All right. Sounds like good advice. So once again, I've been talking with Heather Bowie. Heather, thank you again for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Daryl. Not a problem. This has been Daryl Hamilton and yay for Skagit Talks. Here's the Northwest News Report. Cargoes of premium hay, apples, and seafood are backing up at Northwest ports without a ship to ride. Correspondent Anna King has the why. Americans are pandemic shoppers. That growth of imports from China and other Asian countries, coupled with a dearth of shipping containers, means Northwest exporters are stuck. In some cases, shippers would rather take containers back across the Pacific empty than wait to load them with Northwest goods. That's hurting commodities like beef, fruit, hay, beans, seafood, and even hops. Tong Zhu is with the Northwest Seaport Alliance. When there's a hiccup somewhere, it is felt throughout the chain. I believe that kind of creates a vicious cycle. Zhu says the ports of Seattle and Tacoma are backed up, but still are not as bad off as China's ports, which have long lines of ships waiting to offload. I'm Anna King. The Klamath Basin is facing another year of drought. Jefferson Public Radio's April Ehrlich reports that recent snowfall hasn't contributed much. Forecasts based on federal water data predict that the Klamath Basin will only fulfill about a third of what's needed for agriculture. The upper Klamath Lake is more than a foot lower than it was this time last year. Klamath County Commissioner Donnie Boyd says the region got some snowfall this week, but it's not enough. We are too late for this year to recover from the situation we're in. 
we get most of our moisture in December, January, and February. The basin has faced drought conditions almost every year this past decade. County commissioners have requested that Governor Kate Brown make a state-level drought declaration for the basin to open up financial resources for water users. I'm April Ehrlich reporting. It's looking less and less likely that large cruise ships will sail along the Pacific Northwest coast from Seattle to Alaska this year. Cruise tourists normally provide an important seasonal boost to the small cities of southeast Alaska, as well as ring cash registers in greater Seattle and Astoria. Well, there doesn't seem like there's been any progress in terms of trying to convince Canada to undo the ban. I checked in with Transport Canada, and they said they're not even allowing these things called technical stops. That's this idea that ships could tie up in a Canadian harbor, but people don't get off the ship. In theory, that would satisfy the maritime laws that require an international stop. Cruise lines have to stop in Canada because they're foreign ships with foreign crew, uh, so they have to make a foreign stop because U.S. maritime law restricts who's allowed to sail on domestic routes. Here's 2021 Talks, following our democracy in historic times. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. I'm going to prime time address the American people and talk about what we've been through as a nation this past year. But more importantly, I'm going to talk about what comes next. President Joe Biden's address tonight marks one year since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. He'll lay out the next phase of the response, including a vaccine push, authorizing the purchase of an additional 100 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson single-shot vaccine. When the president speaks tonight, he'll have a big accomplishment to tout. The motion is adopted. The House of Representatives gave final approval to the nearly $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, one of the biggest spending bills since the Great Depression, which Biden is expected to sign Friday. The Senate confirmed Merrick B. Garland as Attorney General, Marsha Fudge as Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Michael Regan to head the EPA. Meanwhile, the Biden administration's foreign policy is taking shape. Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, will hold the administration's first in-person diplomatic meeting with China next week. Secretary Blinken testified Wednesday before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. This is an important opportunity for us to lay out in very frank terms the many concerns that we have with Beijing's actions and behavior that are challenging the security, prosperity and the values of the United States and our partners and allies. Roberta Jacobson, a top White House advisor on border issues, told a White House press conference Central American youth can now apply to join parents already in the U.S. Today we are announcing the restarting of the Central American Minors Program for children to be reunited with a parent who is legally in the United States. First, the administration will process the nearly 3,000 children approved to travel here before former President Donald Trump ended the program in 2017. Jacobson acknowledged border crossings have spiked, including unaccompanied children. She says they're trying to share legal ways to immigrate and deter those from entering illegally. You cannot come through irregular means. It's dangerous and the majority of people will be sent out of the United States. A civil rights group has filed suit against Iowa's new voting reform law, which reduces early voting from 29 days to 20, among other restrictions. Joe Enriquez-Henry, with the Iowa League of United Latin American Citizens, is convinced the changes were made for reasons other than election integrity. It is not voter security. It is voter suppression. It is making it harder for us to utilize our right to vote. 
And finally, former President Trump requested a mail-in ballot for an upcoming local election in Palm Beach, Florida. Despite harshly criticizing the practice, Trump acknowledged Florida's system is secure. Mike Moan contributed reporting. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura Rosbrow-Tellum. Thanks for listening. Here's the national news. The Public News Service Daily Newscast for March the 11th, 2021. I'm Mike Clifford. Rural communities are big beneficiaries from the COVID-19 relief bill Congress passed on Wednesday. Eric Teganoff explains. The $1.9 trillion bill has some well-known provisions, such as the $1,400 stimulus checks. But it also includes billions of dollars in relief for rural and farming communities across the country. President of the Montana Farmers Union, Walter Schweitzer, says farmers in rural towns didn't seem to get much relief from the first two relief bills. Our rural communities are suffering, and no one seemed to care. And this first $3 trillion, it seemed to miss Montana. Opponents of the measure say it's too big and could overheat the economy, potentially driving up inflation and hurting consumers. The bill also provides broader benefits, like $350 billion to state and local governments and extended unemployment relief through September, reauthorizing a $300 boost in weekly benefits. The Senate voted to confirm Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland Wednesday. Garland confirmed on a vote of 70 to 30. CNN reports the former chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit has been praised by members of both parties. He pledged in his nomination hearing last month to fend off any effort by anyone to politically influence the Justice Department's investigations. CNN notes Garland said his first priority would be to fully prosecute the heinous crimes committed in the attack on the Capitol on January the 6th. Meantime, political reports the Senate confirmed Michael Reagan to head the Environmental Protection Agency, putting the North Carolina regulator in charge of restoring the climate and water pollution regulations that the Trump administration had weakened. One year into the pandemic, California is ranked the nation's 20th best state for children. That's according to a new report from the nonprofit Save the Children. Researchers looked at the data on how many families experience hunger or poverty or lack the tools for remote learning. Will Detmar, California's state director for Save the Children, says the data on hunger is troubling. One out of five California households are reporting that they do not have enough food for their kids to eat. That's 2.1 million kids in the Golden State. The report found that 10% of California families say they don't have the right tools to get all their kids on Zoom classes every day. 50% say they're having trouble paying bills, a number that goes up to 65% for black and Latino families. For Public News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. The COVID stimulus bill aims to cut childhood poverty in half. The Golden State stimulus approved in February provides direct relief to low-income families, struggling businesses, and puts millions into state-subsidized child care. This is PNS. Calling the issue a matter of great public importance, a judge ruled that parents challenging the constitutionality of Pennsylvania's school funding system are entitled to their day in court. The lawsuit claims that the state's heavy reliance on local property taxes to fund public education means children in low-income districts go without the educational resources they need. 
Pennsylvania ranks 44th nationally in state share of funding for public schools. According to Maureen McInerney with the Education Law Center, the ruling means that all plaintiffs in the suit, including those whose children have graduated from high school since the case was filed in 2014, can continue to pursue their case. They'll be able to present their own evidence and their perspective in our case, as well as to be a part of the remedy that would be fashioned by the court. I'm Andrea Sears reporting. Dozens of anti-domestic violence advocates in Ohio are coming together to call for improved funding for services that help people in crisis. During the Ohio Domestic Violence Network Spring Advocacy Day, survivors of violence, advocates, and nearly 50 legislators will discuss the challenges shelters and survivors face. Policy Director at ODVN, Michaela Deming, explains that during the pandemic, domestic violence programs have been there to help survivors seeking safety. None of our shelters closed. All of our services have remained open through all of these difficult times. Programs deserve our support, and victims deserve to have the state commit to making sure that we can keep our programs open so that there's a safe place for families to escape violence. In 2019, Ohio funded domestic violence programs in the state budget for the first time and set it at about $1 million annually. Today, advocates will reach out to state legislators to ask that the amount be increased to $5 million in each year of the next biennium budget. Mary Sherman reporting. Finally, Diane Bernard tells us criminal justice advocates are urging West Virginia lawmakers to oppose a bill heading to the Senate that would add up to 10 years of extended supervision for certain drug offenders, even after they've served all of their prison and parole time. Ken Matthews is a peer recovery coach who served five years for two drug crimes. He understands the need to solve West Virginia's substance abuse crisis, but he thinks more supervision is a step backwards into what he calls failed war on drugs policies of the 1990s and would result in more drug users being locked up in the state's overcrowded jails and prisons. Incarceration or long periods of probation or supervision hasn't been shown to aid in somebody reintegrating into society. It passed the House by a vote of 68 to 29, with most Democrats opposing it. I'm Diane Bernard. This is Mike Clifford for Public News Service, member and listener supported, heard on great radio stations and online at publicnewsservice.org. Thanks for listening to today's edition, produced by Joseph C. McGuire and edited by Jay Charles. You've been listening to Skagit Talks, the community information and news program on KSVR, Skagit Community Radio.